This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report. I'm Olivia Willis and I'm sitting in for Dr Norman Swan today with a special edition of the program as part of the ABC's International Women's Day celebrations. We're taking a brief hiatus from coronavirus coverage to look at what else is happening in the world of health. If you're after the latest on coronavirus, you can head to the ABC's new coronavirus podcast. It's called Coronacast for more. Today on the show, the federal government's revamped religious bill is set to be introduced to Parliament soon, but several health bodies have raised concerns that it will create confusion around conscientious objection for doctors and potentially lead to poor patient outcomes. And in Queensland, researchers have discovered that a drug already available for the treatment of travel sickness and psychosis may also help in the treatment of cancer. And the discovery, like lots of good science, was made rather serendipitously. But first up, it's said to be the most common hormonal disorder diagnosed in young women. Polycystic ovary syndrome, sometimes known as PCOS or PCOS, is associated with weight gain, irregular periods, acne and signs of excessive male hormones. PCOS is often thought of as being underdiagnosed, but a new study of Australian doctors has found that many are concerned it is in some cases being misdiagnosed or overdiagnosed. Researchers at the University of Sydney interviewed GPs, gynaecologists and endocrinologists and found that there is still a great deal of uncertainty and even some disagreement when it comes to making a diagnosis. And among patients, misconceptions about the condition, including its impact on fertility, are still fairly widespread. Tessa Kopp is a research fellow at the University of Sydney and she led this research and I spoke with her a little bit earlier. She began by telling me what PCOS is and how it's diagnosed. Polycystic ovary syndrome is probably the most common hormonal disorder affecting reproductive-aged women. There's a few different criteria out there, but probably the most common diagnostic criteria requires two out of three features or criteria to be met. So those include irregular cycles. There's also polycystic ovaries and ultrasound or uh, signs of excess male pattern hormones. So that can be either symptoms of excess testosterone, such as acne, excess hair growth, hair loss for some women, or it can be higher levels of androgens in blood, in the blood results. Okay. And so meeting two, two out of, of the three. three. Yep. Okay. And what makes the line seemingly blurry around diagnosis? Because a lot of the clinicians that you spoke to said that there is no kind of clear line or that can be, it can be hard to see. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of clinicians talked about how they often saw women for whom the diagnosis was unclear or it was uncertain. So the thing about PCOS is it's the symptoms are on a spectrum of severity, so they can really vary in the degree of severity that women are affected, and it can be unclear when normal finishes and the abnormal begins. And these symptoms can also change over time and are influenced by a number of factors such as weight, ethnicity, and also your age. Right, and presumably things like irregular periods, weight gain, acne, they're also things that are just quite common for young women of a reproductive age. So I imagine that also makes it quite challenging in working out, okay, is this just normal or is there something else going on? Yeah, absolutely. That's right. So these symptoms are very common during adolescence. So sometimes it might need to just note the adolescent at risk and follow up over time to confirm the diagnosis because certainly irregular cycles and acne are are very common during adolescence. And polycystic ovaries themselves, they're not 
necessarily an indicator of the condition either. No. So unfortunately, the name is quite inaccurate. So you don't have to have polycystic ovaries to have polycystic ovary syndrome. And actually, lots of women without PCOS can have polycystic ovary findings on ultrasound. And so some studies have found that they're quite common in younger women. So they've been described as kind of a common age-dependent finding. Mm -hmm. And also another thing to consider is that the ultrasound technology we're using is becoming more sensitive as it advances. So that has resulted in picking up more, more and more follicles, kind of artificially increasing the number of women with polycystic ovaries found. So that threshold for what's considered to be polycystic is constantly needing to be revised. And given the uncertainty around the kind of diagnostic criteria, do we think that this is leading to mostly a problem of overdiagnosis or underdiagnosis? A lot of clinicians raise concerns about underdiagnosis. So, for example, some women might not know that irregular cycles are something that should be discussed with their doctor. However, others were also quite concerned about overdiagnosis, so giving women a diagnosis of a chronic condition that will stay with them for a long time but might actually cause them more harm than benefit. And with regarding misdiagnosis, although PCOS is very common, there are lots of other factors or symptoms that can mimic symptoms of PCOS. So, for example, eating disorders, doing too much exercise, obesity, stress, uh, thyroid issues. There's a range of factors that can kind of cause symptoms suggestive of PCOS. So it's really important to kind of exclude those alternative explanations. Going just back quickly to overdiagnosis, what would cause more harm by having that diagnosis given to you? Yeah, so essentially we're turning women into patients. And so for some women captured by this definition, they don't actually have the same increased risks of associated long-term implications that kind of fit the more narrower criteria. What um, are some of those long-term implications? So these include things like type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, and those sorts of metabolic consequences. Yeah, and potential consequences for fertility. That's actually one of the issues that was raised by clinicians was that a lot of women, there's a lot of myths and misunderstandings surrounding the diagnosis. And the big one was women thinking the diagnosis would mean that they're never able to have children naturally, but that's actually not the case. So whilst it may take a little bit longer or they might need medical assistance to help them ovulate, most women will achieve their desired family size with a recent community study in Australia showing that women with PCOS had similar numbers of children to, to women without PCOS. And what do you see as the potential harm of being given that diagnosis, the misconception being I'm not going to be able to have children or, or it's going to be difficult? Do you see that then have impacts on women's reproductive choices, for example, or their contraceptive choices? Yeah, absolutely. So we actually conducted a qualitative study with women and found that fear of infertility had a huge impact on a lot of different areas in their life. So for example, it caused long-lasting anxiety, pressure to conceive earlier than their peers, difficult conversations with their partners, impacted the way they thought about themselves. They then, some women reported changing their parenthood goals, so no longer deciding to have children. And also 
something that arose quite frequently was taking risks with contraception due to the perception it's not necessary. And so three women out of our small sample of 26 had unintended pregnancies. And because they then believed their fertility to be reduced, they continued with the pregnancy because they were worried it might be their only chance of conceiving. So as you can see, it can have lifelong implications in terms of their life choices and educational attainment. One of the issues that the research kind of raised was incorrect self-diagnosis. Mm. How common do we think that happens? So this was a qualitative study, so I can't say how often this is happening, but the fact that many clinicians kind of raise it as an issue gives an indication that is something that needs to be addressed. And I think there's a lot of poor quality information online. And so if women Google a regular periods or polycystic ovaries, the first thing that pops up is polycystic ovary syndrome. So I think it's important for women to know that there are a lot of other factors that can cause symptoms and it's important to get a full workup with their doctor to explore alternative reasons before kind of assigning that diagnosis to themselves. It's interesting with self-diagnosis, it makes me think about how period tracking apps have really taken Mm. off in recent years and how these don't necessarily just offer now data on your menstrual cycle, but they offer kind of tools which say that, you know, your irregular periods might suggest you have a hormonal disorder. Does the use of those apps concern you in terms of if they're medicalizing rather than just offering data? Yeah. So I think whilst it might be useful for some women who are underdiagnosed and for whom the diagnosis would bring a lot of benefit, I think it also has the potential to cause a lot of unnecessary anxiety and distress, particularly with regards to their fertility. Given seemingly the confusion from both clinicians and also from women themselves, what is the solution here? I mean, do we need to kind of rethink the diagnosis of this condition? Yeah, I think it's really tricky because it is a syndrome. It's not a distinct disease entity, I suppose, and symptoms are on a spectrum of severity. So I think we need to take kind of an individual approach. So each for each woman, weigh up the benefits and harms of the diagnosis and how much this is going to help her. Because for some women, it does bring a lot of benefits. So, you know, it validates their experience and provides, you know, relief to have an explanation for what's going on. Whilst for other women, it can kind of only cause increased anxiety and worry about the future, which is potentially unwarranted. Keza Kopp is a research fellow in the School of Public Health at the University of Sydney. You're listening to RN's Health Report with me, Olivia Willis, sitting in for Norman Swan. The federal government's proposed religious freedom bill is expected to be finalised this month after two rounds of feedback from LGBTI advocates and religious groups. As it stands, the bill would allow religious bodies, such as hospitals and aged care providers, to continue to hire people on the basis of their religion. It would also let healthcare workers object to carrying out medical procedures, such as abortions or fertility treatment, on religious grounds, provided they refuse to do so for all patients. It's unclear exactly how the legislation will interact with existing state and territory guidelines, but some health bodies, including the AMA, say it could undermine patient access to healthcare. Danielle Matzer is a professor of general practice at Monash University, where she's also the primary chief investigator at the Centre of Research Excellence in Sexual and Reproductive Health for Women. And she's been following this debate around the Religious Freedom Bill closely. Danielle, welcome to the Health Report. Thank you. Before we get to the proposed bill, what do we know about how religious beliefs might influence the provision of things like contraception or reproductive health care in our system as it stands? Well, we don't have a great deal of 
research evidence around this, but we do in practice uh, hear a lot of things. And I can give you a couple of examples from my own practice where patients have come to me and told me that they have gone to see other healthcare professionals requesting an abortion and been told that they were sinners to think of that and that the doctor would pray for them, for example. Another patient just last week told me that she'd asked her obstetrician to insert an IUD at the time of an intrauterine device at the time of the planned caesarean section that she was going to have for her second child, only to be told that she was booked in at a Catholic hospital where contraception was not allowed and so she wasn't able to have that service provided to her at that time, even though that really is best practice. If a treatment like that, abortion services or contraceptive services, for example, if a treatment is refused under the current system, what obligation do doctors and healthcare professionals have in terms of referring patients on? So I'm not a legal expert, (laughs) I'm a doctor, but my understanding at the moment is that a lot of this is covered under state legislation. And for example, in Victoria, If uh, healthcare professionals have a conscientious objection to abortion, they are required to declare that to their patients and to refer them on to another provider who can assist the patient and provide the required information or service. But my understanding of this legislation is that it doesn't necessarily require a referral to another service or provider and that the conscientious objection can be to a health service rather than just to a treatment or a procedure. And this kind of broadens the scope and broadens the concerns about denying access to services and information to patients. And I think that Australians really expect that when they go to see a healthcare professional, they'll not only be treated with respect, but also be provided with information about all the medical options available to them or referred to a healthcare professional who can provide them with that information. And I think this new legislation gives us a lot of concern that patients won't receive the required information that they need to make decisions about their health. When you say that a a healthcare practitioner could, under this Potentially, this new legislation potentially object to not just a medical procedure but a health service. What, what's the distinction there? I don't want to get into the legalities, which is not really my field, but I think it's, it's also about uh, providing information, not just a treatment or a procedure. And if you take the example of medical abortion, for example, a doctor may not want to provide that service themselves. But medical abortion is legal in Australia. It's funded under the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme for women up until nine weeks gestation. So if a woman is not provided with information at the point of care about the availability of medical abortion, she may not be able to seek it out within the required time period. And these are some of the concerns that we have that a lack of information will lead to delays for patients and potentially complications to their health, you know, them not being able to actually receive best practice care. 
And is this the kind of crux of what the concern is? Because as you say there, in several states, doctors already have the right to conscientiously object to various different treatments based on religious grounds. But the concern here is that they may choose to object, but then they're not actually required to give the whole gamut of healthcare information or accessibility of services. They're not required to refer patients and they might not be required to tell them the information they need to make a decision. Yes, that's exactly right. I think we need to remember that for people who are well off and have good health literacy, they can kind of find their way, navigate their way around the health system. My particular concern is for the most vulnerable And if I'm talking about women's health, which is my area, that's particularly young women, women in rural areas, women with mental health problems, drug and alcohol addiction. These are the women, the most vulnerable women, who often require uh, abortion services for unplanned pregnancy or are trying to get access to long-acting reversible contraception or indeed emergency contraception. And these are the women most at risk. If they're not aware of the availability of services and can't access these services, they are the ones that are most vulnerable to worst health outcomes. Given that, do you think that, you know, can you foresee the changes potentially having more of an impact on when it comes to reproductive health on women in regional areas, for example, where there are already more limited services available or limited access to treatment? Yes, I'm particularly concerned about that because we we do have some limited research that shows quite high rates or higher rates of conscientious objection to these kinds of services in rural areas compared to metropolitan areas. And so it it puts uh, women in these areas more at risk of delay and being unable to access services. Danielle, just finally, I'm wondering here what, in in your perspective, what the solution is. I mean, how do we balance ensuring that doctors have a right to object to medical procedures on the basis of religious grounds, but also ensure that patient healthcare is prioritised? Do we have that balance right? Well, I think we have to be cognisant of the power and authority that doctors hold in relation to their patients when we're examining that balance between freedom of religion and the rights of patients to their own health and their bodily autonomy and not to be discriminated against. And I believe that there should be a right to conscientious objection for those who hold religious beliefs around these kinds of services. But when you have a conscientious objection to service delivery, you need to declare that to your patient and you need to provide them with a referral or information to another service provider in a very timely way so that that patient is not disadvantaged by your own personal beliefs. Danielle, thank you so much for your time. Thanks very much. Danielle Matzer is a Professor of General Practice at Monash University and Primary Chief Investigator at Monash's Centre of Research Excellence in Sexual and Reproductive Health for Women. And in a statement to the Health Report, the Office of the Attorney-General said the Religious Freedom Bill does not prioritise religious views over patient health and that the provisions related to conscientious objection protect the existing abilities of doctors and medical professionals at a state and territory level.
To Queensland now, where researchers have identified a promising new drug combination that could significantly help the immune system target cancer cells and kill them. Monoclonal antibodies are immunotherapy drugs designed to enlist the body's immune system to fight cancer. One of the ways they work is by essentially sticking a flag in cancer cells so that the body's natural killer immune cells can spot them and come and attack the cancer. But in certain cancers, like head and neck and some types of breast cancer, these drugs only work in about 15% of patients. When they don't work, the drug target is difficult to reach and there's no response in the patient, so they just experience the side effects. Associate Professor Fiona Simpson has been working for years on a way to predict who the drugs will work on and turn non-responders into responders. In new work published in Cell, Dr Simpson has shown that by locking the drug targets into place on the surface of the tumour cells, you can improve the response of patients the drugs don't typically work on. It all starts with a travel sickness drug many Australians already use. So it just so happens that originally, like 20 years ago, I did my postdoctoral work in a lab in the United States who discovered a molecule called Dynamin. Well, it's function. And I knew that if we inhibited that molecule, that that would hold the target receptors on the top of the tumour and stick them there. And then we could change the patients who don't respond into patients who respond. So we were told for a very long time that we couldn't do that in human beings, that it would be very toxic, that it would have all these side effects. And we've tested the process out for years. But what really got us over the line is that we have collaborators at the University of Sydney in Newcastle who make dynamin inhibitors. And they sent us a slide late one night that showed that there's an old drug in clinic called prochlorperazine, PCZ for short. In Australia, it's called Stematol. People take it at low concentrations as a travel sickness drug. They take it at higher concentrations almost daily to prevent psychotic attacks if they have psychotic episodes. And we're using it at really very high concentrations by IV delivery because at those concentrations, those drugs have a side effect, not their actual on-target effect, but a side effect whereby they inhibit the molecule Dynamin. And so we actually found that this is a drug already used in clinic It already had the effect we want and we thought, well, it must be possible because we've been doing this accidentally for 60 years. And so with this process, what you're doing is you're delivering the antibody treatment as normal, but in conjunction, you're delivering this anti-nausea drug, which is effectively changing the surface of the tumour cell so that it is recognisable to the immune system and then the immune system can respond. Yeah. So the the reason it works without the high toxicities is that it only inhibits dynamin for about four hours. So what happens is the patients get the antibody for their cancer, their particular cancer, and then we give them IV, quite good concentrations of this anti-nausea drug. And what happens is all of a sudden the tumours just stop, all their traffic stops. It literally is like stopping the traffic. The antibodies in their system see their targets and they bind them And then all the tails of the antibodies cluster together and stick up. And what we show in the paper is that those tails are then recognised by your natural killer cells and your immune system. The natural killer cells actually zipper up to the tumour cells in a really simple way. All we're doing is 
playing Lego in the clinic whereby everything moves to the right place at the right time so that you get a really good immune response and good tumour killing. And where is the research up to? You've tested the, you've looked at the treatment in, in mice, in tumours from head and neck cancer, breast cancer, colorectal cancers, and now you're moving into human trials? So there is human data in the paper that we published today. In the humans, we had five local volunteers here in Brisbane who consented to the trial, and it was a no-benefit trial. So they were really amazing people who did this to benefit other people than themselves. And we took a tumour biopsy from the throats of head and neck patients, and then we gave them a 20-minute IV delivery of prochlorperazine, And then we took another biopsy and we actually demonstrated in the humans that you could see the change on the surface of the tumours in the target of the drug. And what was really amazing in that is part of our issue in treating cancers is within one person's tumour, a lot of the cancer cells are quite different from each other. And so that's what makes it so hard to kill a whole tumour. And when we looked at the patient's tumours after the stemital delivery, the target of the drug, the EGF receptor, was the same on all the tumour cells. So I'm the daughter of tradesmen (laughs) and it's kind of a tradesperson's fix to tumour heterogeneity because you don't have to have all the tumour cells identical. You only have to have all of the tumour cells the same for the target of the drug that you're going to use. So that's something that we did show in patients and some amazingly heroic volunteers. We're separately to the paper, we're just completing phase 1B safety trials at the Princess Alexandra Hospital. That data is not published yet, but we have analysed the safety data. And even though we're up at the highest concentrations and towards the end of the safety trial, our patients have had, they've had the normal side effects that you get with the antibody drugs, but they've also, with the added prochlorperazine, they get very drowsy for about half an hour as we're giving the IV. And some of our patients have a nap. And then at night, some of our patients get a little bit agitated with the prochlorperazine dropping out of their system. But then if they feel that that's not very good, they come in and the oncologist can give them a muscle relaxant to help them. So, so far, things are going promisingly, Mm. but what we really need to do are phase two trials to show efficacy. Depending on what happens, obviously, with the phase two trials, what's your hope if they're shown to be successful? I mean, is this kind of paving the way, in a sense, for almost a new field of therapeutic intervention when it comes to targeting tumour cells? So our most basic hope in looking at our current data is that we'll get up to four times the number of patients responding to these drugs than have before. And that's an awful lot of cancer patients because lots of different cancers get different drugs. So four times the number of people responding would be really good. Our hope as well is that this is really a a different approach in humans where you temporarily and safely move drug targets around on the surface of the cells that you're trying to hit. And so we're hoping that people take that idea on and develop it even further. But also stopping cell trafficking the way that we have 
has been suggested by others to be a potential therapy for things like epilepsy, childhood serious epilepsy. It's been suggested as an approach for chronic kidney disease. But none of this beautiful science from all these people has ever been translated into clinic because people couldn't really show that you could safely stop all cell trafficking for that short time. So I guess one of the really nice things about our work, as well as potential effects on cancer therapy, is that now a lot of these applications can possibly be translated into clinic and medicine. Well, Fiona, best of luck with the phase two trials and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Fiona Simpson is an Associate Professor at the University of Queensland's Diamantina Institute and Principal Fellow of the Queensland Head and Neck Cancer Centre. And as the coronavirus outbreak continues, you can keep up to date with the ABC's new podcast. It's called Coronacast. To find it, head to the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's hosted by my colleague and the host of this show, Dr Norman Swan and ABC science and health journalist Tegan Taylor. And it's all about answering your coronavirus questions and keeping you across the latest news. I'm Olivia Willis. You've been listening to The Health Report on RN. Thanks for joining me. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.